letter to the Romans, chapter 1. As you're turning to that, let me express the fact that Mrs. David Bower's father passed away and went to be with Christ yesterday in Philadelphia. I know that your prayer or card to Betty and David would be most encouraging to them. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brethren, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Let us pray. Enable, O Lord, speaker and hearers, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to grasp the mystery of the message of the gospel. In Jesus Christ we ask it. Amen. The letter to the Romans is geared to our day. It reached a spiritually bankrupt age, and that's the one in which we live. In fact, paganism had become so shocking to the residents of Rome that they turned from it in disgust to the occult and the superstitious, seeking to fill the religious vacuum of their heart. 
And have we not seen in our own day the rise of the superstitious and the occult, filling the empty places in the hearts of men caused by unbelief in biblical religion and by the bankruptcy of non-biblical? So Paul writes to the Christians at Rome to lay a foundation under their faith. And that foundation will stand you in good stead too. What could be more important to a man or woman in the 20th century than to have a firm footing on which to base his worldviews? Every perplexing question facing you can be addressed from the book of Romans, and therefore it is to that letter that we address ourselves now with the help of God. Paul wrote to them, as a precursor to his visit, never having seen or known them in person, he wanted to prepare them for his coming. He wanted a good reception, a common base on which to meet. And so he chose the word gospel as the theme of his letter, for it is on that ground that they would meet. The gospel, therefore, is described fully in this first section, verses 1 to 17 of chapter 1. It is like a footing on which the further foundation for faith will rest. When Paul comes, he is anxious that they know that he is not going to be ashamed of this gospel on which they have common ground. He assumes that he might be expected to be ashamed because after all, Rome, this great cosmopolitan and powerful center would not have much uh, interest in a crucified victim. What would this man hanging on the cross have to say to power-hungry Romans? In addition, he might have reason to be ashamed because this gospel declares that all men are sinful, and who wants to hear of his own sinfulness? But in spite of the fact that it might be expected the proclamation of the gospel in Rome would be ashamed in Paul's mind. He says, I am not ashamed. Verses 16 and 17 form the capsule text for all of these first 17 verses. I am not ashamed. And the reason he's not ashamed is that it is the gospel of glory. God's gospel is covered with glory. Why should I be ashamed of something glorious? And the teaching then of this first passage is that the gospel is so glorious that it is worthy of all acceptance and of no shame. The gospel is so glorious that it is worthy of all acceptance and of no shame. What is the glory of the gospel from verses 16 and 17? It is the glory associated with persons. He begins for I. I. Who is I? Paul. Paul who is the servant of Jesus Christ. Meaning by that that he has implicit obedience in everything that Christ commands. He is a bondservant to Christ. And if you're here today as a Christian, you also are a bondservant to Christ. There are no degrees of Christians. 
Whoever is in Christ is called to be a bondservant. And so he chooses a title which annexes him to all of us who are also believers. And he is called to be an apostle. He did not volunteer. He did not make up the office. Not a little project of his own doing. But Christ put his mighty hand upon him. His ordination was the ordination of the nail-pierced hands, and he's proud of it. Separated unto the gospel of God, meaning that the whole warp and woof of his life was to be consumed with the gospel, as if he would say, this one thing I do. This person, Paul, educated in Tarsus, full of Greek learning, further trained in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, the great Hebrew professor, having the ability to communicate with both the Greek and the Hebrew world, perhaps the most intellectual, the best educated man of his day. This is the one that God inducted into the office of the apostle of the gospel. He could have put him in medicine and made him a mighty physician. God could have put him in statecraft and had him organizing government. He could have put him in politics or in the military for great conquests. But he said, God separated me under the gospel. And you want to know what is the glory of the gospel? It's partly the glory that comes from the persons with which God has associated the gospel. And the persons reach into history Because he says here that this gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. It's a very important sentence. One of the most wonderful phenomena of all of human history is the fact that God prepared for the coming of his Son in history carefully so that over hundreds of years Men and women were ready to recognize and receive Christ when he came. He did it through the prophets. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi. Through these prophets, the people were made ready. No other religious leader was newsy at birth. No other religious leader was proclaimed ahead of time and promised until Christ came. You see, the rise of the Christian religion does not owe itself to blind chance. It does not come about just by fate. It was predetermined by God, promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. And if you are here today looking for some authenticating mark of the gospel, something to let you know, yes, this is real and true, I ask you to look at the thread of history which makes ready for the coming of Christ into the world. And so the glory of the gospel is in its persons, Paul and the prophets, but mostly, consummately, in the person of his Son, who is Jesus Christ. Because we read here that the gospel concerns his Son. Jesus Christ is the center, the beginning and the end of the gospel. Everything depends upon him in the gospel and centers in him. We read that he was, according to the flesh, 
descended from David, which means that he had a human nature. He came from a particular descent. But the very fact that it says according to the flesh makes us know that he also had another nature, which we read later is a divine nature, so that he was both human and divine. He was the eternal Son of God. God in the second person, the Son of God, from everlasting. He never had a beginning. But he was the God of heaven who assumed human flesh, the flesh of David, and came among us to live and die for us. But we did not know him. Yet, when God raised him from the dead, that was to set certain signs of his being God. It reads here that he was designated Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. You need have no further doubts about the identity of Jesus Christ. Only he came forth from the dead. No other religious leader ever rose from the dead and was seen by so many who spoke and ate and talked with his disciples like our Lord Jesus Christ. And we read that he is Lord. When the Bible calls Christ Lord, it does not simply mean a superior to whom we would owe obedience, but the word Lord means that he is God, because this same word Lord is the word translated of the Old Testament Jehovah. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we mean that Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh. And since he is the center of the gospel, who he is, determines our understanding of the gospel. You can't have the gospel without the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you say, why is this gospel glorious? In what does its glory consist? It consists in the glory of the persons. First Paul, the best man of his age, and then the prophets, the most godly men of their ages, attesting to the gospel and finally and supremely, the blessed Savior himself, who is altogether lovely, who is the infinite and eternal God, come among us to live in our flesh and to die for us. What glory! How can you be ashamed of such a gospel or refuse to accept it? In this verse 16, the glory of the gospel is depicted even further by the apostle. For he says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here, the gospel is glorious because it is that in which God has chosen to work. That is, the gospel's glory comes from the fact that it is effective. It actually does what needs to be done. Paul is not a theoretical man, but a practical man. He does not endorse the gospel because he can demonstrate it from logic, though he could, but he demonstrates the gospel because it works. It's the power of God. 
It actually does the thing God wants to do. And what's that? Your sinful heart needs to be forgiven. Your guilty conscience needs to be calmed and quieted. Your hope of heaven needs to be realized. And you need to know that you're on your way assuredly to heaven. The very things that the human heart hungers for, the needs of our spirit are utterly met in the gospel. It works. The Romans, to whom Paul was writing, are evidence of that. He says in verse 7, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. God didn't love them because they were saints. But he loved them, and then in his love he turned them into saints through the gospel. Now picture them. Their faces are the faces of slaves. Their hands are calloused and narrowed from their long hours of work. They live in the midst of a degraded, corrupt, and filthy culture. All around them there is immorality. There is murder and vice running rampant. But in the middle of this awful city, there is a little band of men and women who are living pure lives, who have denounced filth and immorality, and who are singing praises and who are ready to die for their Lord and for his gospel. Now what other than the gospel could do that? What else could take a slave out of his awful vice and lift him up and make him into a new person? The gospel is the power of God. It works. Pagan religion wasn't working. It was adding to degradation. Jewish religion was formal and skeptical. Nothing was working, nor is it working today. Is any follower of Baha'i finding his way to heaven assuredly? Is any disciple of Islam able to find the forgiveness of sins by which he can sing joyously that forever he knows he is under no condemnation but has passed from death to life? Does anyone interested in self-improvement Believe that by his own bootstraps he can lift himself out of self-centeredness into service for others? Is not every religious attempt of the day falling short, no matter how many jewels of truth may be found in them? Is it not true that the only thing which delivers a man from guilt and sin and death and hell is the gospel? Is that not what makes it so glorious? And this is available for all. He says, to everyone who has faith. Some of you are saying, well, the gospel's good for religious types, but I'm not a religious type. Some of you are saying, well, that's good for people of a certain background, but I don't have that background. Or others are saying, if you're intelligent and educated in these things, I suppose the gospel is fine. But that isn't the gospel. It is for everyone who has faith, regardless 
of your personality, your intelligence, your education, whoever has faith. God put this on the simplest possible basis. It is not on the basis of your personality or temperament, of your training, but on the basis of that which all of us can exert, given grace by the Holy Spirit, the basis of faith. God says, I give you, and faith says, I receive. Faith, said one African, is the hand of the heart, the heart reaching out its hand to receive a gift from the king. Faith is being persuaded of the truth of the gospel and more than that, lodging one's whole dependence on the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Everything depends upon your faith being rightly placed it is not enough to say, yes, I believe in God. Your faith has to be placed carefully and exactly in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Without that, you are not acknowledging what God did to save you. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Its glory comes from the fact that it actually works. It does change a man. It does put our feet on the road to heaven. It does what other religions and faiths cannot do. And it does it simply with a basis that everyone can grasp, the basis of faith. Who could be ashamed? of such a gospel. And the last reason Paul gives here for not being ashamed is in verse 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. In other words, the glory of the gospel is its proclamation, what it says, because it clears up a big mystery. The mystery is this matter of righteousness. Now we know that we do not have righteousness in ourselves. Everyone who knows his own heart, the better you know your own heart, the less you esteem yourself. You know you are not righteous, and I know I am not righteous. Well, can I make myself righteous? Suppose I try. Here's the law of God. Suppose I try to obey it completely so that I can be righteous. I find that God demands perfect obedience. And I find that though I may be able to keep some of the law, still within my heart I cannot keep the law of God both inwardly and outwardly in perfection. So now I know I am not righteous. And I cannot make myself righteous. What then shall I do? And here's the great cry of the human race over righteousness. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? 
gospel reveals or unfolds or discloses the righteousness of God. Because it says to me, you don't have to produce your own righteousness. I thought I did. No, God says, I will take of my own righteousness that which is approved and acceptable to me and I will give it to you as a gift. And clothing you with it, I will receive you as my own. And I give it to you in Christ. If you take him, you take my righteousness because he is my righteousness. You cannot work for righteousness, but I can give it. I can confer it by my grace. And I do to everyone who has faith. Therefore, the righteousness of God is seen in the gospel. This fact is not disclosed anywhere else in the universe. Only in the gospel of God can you discover that the righteousness of God is not a requirement to keep you from heaven, but a gift given in Christ to all who believe. So it is entirely of faith, through faith and for faith, the righteousness of God comes to us not by earning it or striving after it, but by simply receiving Christ into our life. And it's for faith. That is, it goes on. The whole Christian life is lived in the same attitude. We start out confessing faith with our lips, and we continue working out faith in our deeds of daily living. Through faith and for faith. And Paul shows that this is nothing new. This is the way it's always been. He who through faith is righteous, that's the one that shall live. Now you see, this revelation of the righteousness of God puts down all human wisdom and righteousness forever. We all would like to produce our own righteousness. And many of you are trying to do that. Many of you are earning with sincere and religious effort. You are earning your way to heaven. You are producing a righteousness. Some of you have natural gifts. You are kind. You are wise. You are righteous. And your neighbors and your family say, oh, how wise and kind she is. How righteous she is. But the gospel says that God takes no stock in that righteousness, especially if you esteem yourself so. If you would receive the righteousness of God, you must renounce your own righteousness your own wisdom as being utterly in vain and self-deceived. Renounce that or you have no part in the righteousness of Christ. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And what Paul is really saying is that human righteousness and human wisdom are renounced. They have no place so that whoever is a fit subject for the kingdom of God 
must be so humble as to be one who is waiting for the mercies of God and who utterly distrusts his own wisdom and his own good works as having no avail whatsoever to receive the righteousness of God. Is that you? People are willing to renounce their wealth for God. They're really willing to renounce their own bodies for God. And they take these as religious acts. People do it every Sunday. But are you willing to renounce your own righteousness for God and see it as filthy rags, see yourself completely naked before God and say, oh, clothe me only with the righteousness of Christ. That's what it means to be saved. Oh, what a glorious gospel. Where else? Would God's righteousness be unfolded but here? Where else would the Son of God be known but in this gospel? Where else would the prophets find their fulfillment but in the gospel? How can you be ashamed of it? I ask you to prize it, ponder it, appropriate it, but do not be ashamed of it. For Jesus said, whoever will be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will I be ashamed when I come in the glory of my Father. If you are ashamed of this gospel, then you do not believe it. And if you do not believe it, you are contradicting it. Examine your heart with regard to the gospel. Have you not lived by your own gospel long enough? your own homemade way of approaching God, your own righteousness. Hasn't that been enough? Don't you see the folly of it? Renounce it and run to Christ. See him there. His wounds are bleeding. His eyes are weeping. He longs for you to come home. You are his child. For you he died. Will you not give faith to him and make him yours? They asked Lord Clyde one day, when would you be ready to start for India with the gospel? Oh, said Lord Clyde, snapping to attention, I'm ready now. They thought it would take months. He said, no, I'm ready now with the gospel. And I say, when are you ready to embrace Christ? Don't postpone that. Renounce your righteousness embrace him as master and savior and lord I am trusting thee Lord Jesus trusting only thee 